Well, I picked a fun passage for today, <laughs> a heavy one, but this is a good one, an important one. So let's pray uh, as we walk through it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, uh, we would not be defensive today, but that we would hear what you have to say to us through your Word. We have so many uh, cultural narratives and layers that uh, keep us from understanding your Word and, and just our own sinful resistance. So we pray that we would be open, that we would be changed, that we would be cleansed, that we would receive Christ anew. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. If you've driven a car for a few years or more, you probably notice when something doesn't seem quite right. Certain strange sounds can indicate that you need to get help with the car. Screeching may signal a transmission problem. Grinding, when you stop, may mean that you need new brake pads. Loud noises coming out the back where it sounds like you've got a hot rod <laughs> may mean that you have a muffler or a manifold issue. And for that strange scratching when you stop, if you don't go see someone, it could actually eventually ruin your brake drums. You didn't know you'd get all this free advice today on cars. Very amateurish advice. We have people who can really help you with that. But when you hear, when you see, when you smell issues with your car, friends, what you don't do is take it to the car wash. You see, spraying the outside, and it may need that, your car may be dirty, but that won't address a failing transmission or brakes or a muffler or engine or whatever. You need a mechanic. You need somebody who is capable, who can look under the hood and deal with what's under the hood, as it were. And as I thought about this, while, while no one would make the car washing mistake for an internal mechanical problem, at least no one I know, <laughs> So many, nevertheless, diagnose the human condition this way, all the time. Thinking that whatever ails us can be fixed with, with outward remedies and rituals, behavior modification, a mere change of scenery, or, or being around better people, or changing structures and systems and changing society, now these factors can certainly influence us. But they don't drill down to the core. You see, your heart needs to be made right. Someone needs to look under the hood and deal with what is there. And so we're going to have three headings today that we look at, and, and the title of the sermon is Inside Out. But I'm going to start with outside in, and that first outside in is the misdiagnosis. Then we'll look at inside out, the proper diagnosis, and then we'll look at, once again, outside in, the remedy. So outside in, the misdiagnosis, Jesus has demonstrated, as we have gone through Mark, his immense authority to calm the storm, to be Lord over nature, to cast out demons, and then as we saw last week, to actually raise a young deceased girl back to life, signaling that he would actually raise himself as we look at Easter down the road. 
But here, in some ways, you could say, now that he's teaching in this portion, here he is showing some of his most impressive work because he is able to diagnose and peer into the human condition like no one can. He can peer under the hood, as it were, again, and see what is wrong. Verse 14, And he called the people near him, and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing out of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, Jesus here is not giving us a green light to abuse drugs and alcohol. He's not saying that what we read or the music we listen to or the people that we hang out with, the things that we indulge in, that those don't have an effect on us. There is truth, and and the book of Proverbs talks about this so much, much, that garbage in, garbage out, things do influence us. But rather, he is saying that that since our problems don't begin ultimately with others, they're not on the surface, therefore they can't be addressed by external rituals or surface solutions. You see, your problem isn't ultimately your stomach or your gut, it's your heart. And whatever goes into your mouth, Jesus says, is expelled. But the issue is what comes out of your heart. And by the way, here with one fell swoop, Jesus, we're told in verse 19b, he makes all foods clean. Now this is a huge deal for the Jewish people, isn't it? He is saying to us, and the early church had to learn this, that there's no need to worry about salmon versus shellfish or Beef versus pork. Now, you may need to watch some or all of these foods. I actually do, uh, because of my medical reasons. But, but they have zero impact on your spiritual well-being. What you bring in to your body is a matter between you and your nutritionist, your doctor, but it is not what shapes your soul or can cure your soul. Now... As I was preparing this, and this often happens when when we deal with these kinds of issues, I thought, you know, for the most part, they seem foreign and distant. These food concerns, right? You know, obsession about what we eat and how that affects our, our lives. But then I thought a little more again about our culture. There is a lot of emphasis on what is called clean food and clean foods and clean eating. I saw just this week an NPR article that was entitled Purity Through Food. Now think about some of the themes that are dealt with here. And the article basically said that that we so often in our culture, almost to an obsessive degree, even to a religious degree, the article said, in a secular article, that we look to food in such a way that it can heal everything. We put that kind of emphasis on clean eating in so many ways. But friends, the food we eat won't heal our souls. In fact, it can actually become an occasion to express 
pride and superiority toward others. It can become an obsession again, as this article said. Now on the lighter side, and I tell you this as one who takes food and diet really, really seriously. Um, I, I have to, and I do. And I have people in my family, loved ones, who, who are serious about things like organic food. So take this in light of those <laughs> qualifications. There's a cartoon, and it looks like it's a far side kind of drawing. drawing. And it's a well-dressed woman, and she's at the farmer's market, and she's buying organic food. It says organic food over the banner there. And the strip says, and the woman is saying through that, that indicator, she says, well, you may not feel any healthier right away, but you'll definitely feel more smug. <laughs> I think that can be an issue as we aim to be pure and clean with all the things that we work on in our lives. We can do it also with exercise. But as we consider the problems in our lives, we then begin to blame it on the system that we are a part of. We blame it on structures. We say that sin, if there is such a thing, is, is transmitted primarily through institutions. And so then society ends up adding more and more regulations to try to keep the human heart in check. But the Bible says it's not getting to the remedy or the, uh, the problem. And here are some of the phrases that we hear that indicate that people aren't buying what Jesus says here. But we need to. You know, we hear this all the time. People are basically good. Now, we were created good in God's image. We have incredible worth as those whom God has made and fashioned after himself. We have intrinsic beauty as human beings. No one can take that from us. No human being is a piece of trash. And so we were created good, but we are radically fallen. We are corrupted. And so Jesus is explaining that to us as the rest of the Bible does. There, there are other phrases we hear, and I've actually heard this, um, you know, not just on the news, but in conversations. Somebody will do something like even commit a crime, and you'll hear, well, despite the crime, he's a nice guy. It's interesting, isn't it? Or you'll hear someone said that awful thing, but they're so kind-hearted and sweet, sweet deep down. Well, maybe the awful thing didn't come from a place of kindness. Or he cheated on his wife, but that was so out of character. Actually, maybe it revealed a character problem. That's what Jesus is saying, but he actually says it much more bluntly. And so when we say these kinds of mottos and sentiments, we demonstrate that we see sin as something that is accidental or tangential or something on the peripheral. It is incidental. But Jesus says, no, it's central to who you are. When we say something that is unkind to people, I mean, let's bring it home. I've done this before. 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Think about that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Or we blame our negative words on the fact that we didn't sleep. Um, Gluten made me do it. All sorts of things are to blame other than my heart. Uh, The pastor and, and theologian Paul Tripp said something about this. He pointed out that it would be far more biblical to say, please forgive me for saying what I meant. How many times do we actually own the corruption of our hearts to that degree? Now there's a little caveat that I think we have to put in here, and and I've been talking about ways that we rationalize sin, that, that we say, you know, there's ways that we can deal with it, but I actually think In our modern society, people would say uh, often that the problem is not um, the heart. The problem is not expressing the heart. The problem is not letting the heart have its full reign. You see, the the modern philosophy of, of what's been called expressive individualism by the American sociologist Robert Bella, this says that Each person has a unique core of feeling that must be expressed. That's really the center of reality for all of us. We are self-creating. We are to be self-orienting. And in this way of thinking, in our culture, we ascribe authority and power to our inner life, don't we? Psychological feelings often play the, the decisive role in determining who we are and our personal identity. As the songs say, listen to your heart. It'll be foolproof and foolish proof. Now, our feelings are important. The Bible talks often about our feelings. God cares about them. But our feelings are fallen because they stem from a fallen, Jesus says, a corrupted heart. The writer Agatha Christie said, Everybody said, follow your heart. I did, it got broken. It did, it got broken. You see, we can't help but begin to recognize that the heart is unclean. We know better if we are honest. Four years ago, a a secular philosopher wrote an article in the New York Times I've mentioned this, I mentioned it a few years ago, but he he talked about original sin, and he said basically what's good about the doctrine of original sin. Now, he basically gutted a lot of it from the Bible's point of view. He said we have to see it in a more secular way. But I want you to note what he said as he was talking about his own struggles in life. And this is obviously in a very secular source. He said, when I look within, I see certain extreme failings. I have not been able to get rid of most of them, and I have accumulated others as I have gone along. Perhaps you've done better, but most of us certainly come up short of our own ideals. Now, add to that how short we come up of from God's ideals. And then he says, even by our own moral standards, we are profoundly flawed. Boy, he's right. 
That is a more honest assessment. And so we've seen a little bit on the issues of outside in, and, and certainly if you reflect in your own lives, and we do this every week, hopefully, when we confess our sins together, some of these issues come to light. They really do. Well, Jesus gives us the proper diagnosis. He looks under the hood, and it begins inside out. He insists that our words and our actions flow from our internal and spiritual sources, that the poison wells of human motivation are the real problem. I don't really like saying that. You probably don't like hearing it, but it's true. You see, if the heart is evil, there will be evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, all the things that Jesus lists here, and more. And of course, Jesus here is reflecting all of Scripture. The prophet Jeremiah famously said in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. Do you ever find that you can't even figure out your own motivation? And then he said, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, I said something to my wife, Liz, this week. She's not here. She's with the grandkids. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't brutal, but as soon as I said it, I thought, why in the world did I just say that? I, I, like, we were having a good conversation. I don't even remember, remember what it was. I doubt she would, right? Um, but who can understand the things that we sometimes say? Psalm 51, there David, after confronting his sin, his external sin, realized where it came from. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, this all begins to reflect on the fact that the heart is the core, it is the command center, it is the storm center of our volition, of the things that we think about, the things that we want. And the Bible says that we have warped wanting. Warped wanting. And that is the core of so many of our problems. And so Jesus mentions pride. I'm not going to go deeply into everything that he touches on here, but just think for a moment how pride really is the central problem for all of us. I was stopped in my tracks a few years ago. I read it, read it to one of my sons, and, and he agreed. Um, it's a quote I hadn't seen until a few years ago, and it's from an early uh, philosopher in the 6th century named Bethius, or Bothius. And he wrote, as he was talking about the deadly sins like envy and greed and lust and so forth, some of the things that Jesus lists here, this philosopher said, while all vices flee from God, trying to get away, pride alone withstands God. Pride stands in the face of God and says, I'm going to do it my own way. And I don't think we do this overtly, but we do it subtly, friends. Our pride becomes ego-centeredness, and we can begin to taint even the best things we do with the motivations of self. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, men desire to be humble 
in order that they may be admired for it. <laughs> I think we all know. I think we all know what that's like in all sorts of realms of life. Or we can think of anger. And of course, this comes in many ways from pride and our ego not getting its way. Now, I'm not a person who tends to lash out, but after I wrote that, I thought, well, at least not in public. <laughs> I, I tend to keep my cool and, and I'm, I'm careful, especially as a pastor, you know, about things that frustrate me or people who maybe say things that aren't um, well phrased. You know, I, I usually sleep on it and try to pray on it, and, and I'll often, hey, talk to somebody that's a, uh, an advisor or a counselor of sorts and say, is this, what do you think about my response here? So, so I can sort of, in a way, take pride that I keep my anger in check. But then I think about this, and I shared it with our community group two weeks ago. But, oh, have I written, edited, sent and felt quite satisfied with my strong response to negativity, uh, all in my head. I celebrated what I wrote. <laughs> I didn't do it, but I internalized it, and I went through this whole scenario, all within. And then I think of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I've been angry with some people this last year. None of you, but angry. And that is a very convicting statement. Jesus really gets to the core of who we are. Or he deals with uh, adultery and lust. And I just want to say briefly, as we think about our culture that's absolutely losing its mind, and losing its bearings. Um, pornography is a terrible blight on our culture. It, it is a demonic temptation for an increasing amount of people. New um, polls are coming out about this and how people are getting more and more tolerant of it, um, singles and married people. But it taps into the warp, warped wantings that already reside in the fallen human heart. It's to be avoided. But what Jesus is saying is that the human heart is what devises these things and is already tempted to these things. And then Jesus also deals with envy and jealousy. And I, I wanted to touch on this a little bit. Um, I heard a, an interview with, with a, a woman named uh, Tilly Dillahay. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She's written for the Gospel Coalition. She's been interviewed by Focus on the Family. And she... Uh, wrote a book called Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy. And, and she told a really interesting story. I found it fascinating. And, and she was interviewed on Focus on the Family. And, and she's a super pleasant and articulate person. And, and she grew up in a family of musicians. And she talks about her two older sisters. She loves them. You know, she, she, she grew up playing music with them. And she, she even recorded her own little jazz album when she was 16. And, and, and music is her passion. It's what she wanted to be good at. It's what she wanted to get some acclaim for. 
And she indicated in this uh, interview that it was her sophomore year in college that she went to a club where two of her sisters were uh, performing. And unbeknownst to her, they had been practicing harmonies that, that this sister Tilhey didn't know about or Tilly didn't know about. And, and they were working on songs. They wanted to unveil all of this for their family and growing group of fans. And, and Tilly heard her sisters in the club and her heart sank because she realized they have talent that I don't have. They have what I have been aspiring to my whole life. And she didn't hate her sisters, but she hated that she didn't have what they had. And she began to turn green with envy and really begin to struggle um, with wanting what others have. The acclaim, the encouragement, the giftedness that she always wished she had. Now, God had given it to her, but not in the measure that he had given it to her sisters. And so she talks very candidly about the struggle with envy. Friends, I think some of us feel that way. When somebody else has a connection with somebody that, that we'd like to have and it's not as close. When somebody receives the kind of affirmation that, that we would like or to the degree to which we'd like it, these things can bother us. And we don't necessarily resent the person, but we want some of what they have. And so Jesus addresses that as an issue of the heart. He gives us a true diagnosis. All of this stems from the core of our fallen nature. But then I want to bring you back to outside in. Because the remedy, friends, is not trying harder. It's certainly not ritual. It's not what we eat. It's not how we dress. It's not the systems that we're in. It's not tr simply trying to act better. Fake it till you make it, though there are times to do that. But the solution for our inside-out defilement is the outside-in cleansing of Jesus. It is the goodness of another. You see, Jesus has come to do what the purity codes could not do, even as they all pointed to him. All of them. You see, these ceremonies of washing and cleansing, some of which built up with them all these extra traditions, at the core, they were longing for true cleansing. And they finally gave way to the substance, to Jesus. You see, as we heard this passage read today, it kind of ends on a tough note. But we have to read it in light of the entire gospel. Mark's gospel doesn't end here. It doesn't stop with Jesus simply saying, your hearts are polluted. But you see, as Jesus drilled down into the nature of our fallen hearts that are curved in on themselves, given over to pride and anger and lust and envy more than any of us want to admit. And friends, we know those can be very dark things sometimes, ugly things that sometimes leak out of us. As Jesus exposed these things, as he looked under the hood, he knew he was going to the cross to wash away my guilty stains and yours. 
We've heard reflected in our music today, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Well, Jesus has come to answer David's prayer and mine and yours. He is the great blotter so that we won't be blotted out. He can erase our sins without erasing us. You see, only his pure blood, his perfect life can cleanse our imperfect and unclean souls. When the Apostle Paul struggled with, with the conflict he sensed sense between his new heart in Christ and his old nature, he wrote very honestly and famously in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then down in verse 24, it's like he just cries out, wretched man that I am, who? Not what, but who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He delivers you and me from our inability to deliver ourselves from our own corrupted and guilty hearts. And so we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But there's more outside-in gifts that God gives to us. You see, we need new birth at the root. We need new hearts. We need to be regenerated. And so the prophet Ezekiel looked forward to the day when God would do that. God said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, to walk away from pride and envy and resentment and unkindness and lust and all of these things. I will give you that ability through my spirit. You see, friends, as someone has said, we are not just turning over a new leaf, but we need to receive a new life. And so what Ezekiel was promising, the Spirit of Christ does for us in Christ. The Spirit causes this root change so that the governing disposition of the soul, of our souls, that governing disposition changes. Over time, this new birth, this new life begins to grow, and we become, by grace, inclined more toward God, turning to Him as we turn away from anger and lust and pride and these other things. And friends, when we don't turn away from those things, we're convicted. We feel bad. And we realize we need to turn again to Christ. Tilly Dillahay, as she talked about her struggle with envy, she's very candid. 
She also has remedies for it. First and foremost, it's looking to Christ. And, and when you realize that you see the gifts in others that you may be jealous about, know that their glory is borrowed glory. <laughs> God has given them a kind of glory. He's given you glory. He's gifted us all in different ways. And so she says, look to him, to the glory of his creation, and thank him wherever you find it. Look on beauty and be grateful. Look on truth and be grateful. Look on talent and be grateful. Thank him openly that your friend or your sibling has a thing or the gift that he has or she has. And ask your father to grant you the heart eventually to feel that thanks reflexively. And give him thanks for what he's granted to you. You see, this all begins to come from that new disposition, that life of the Spirit. Christ is changing us at the root. So friends, don't withstand God in pride, as that philosopher said. Bow to him in humility. I struggle with that, and you do too. But do it. Bow in humility. Don't flee away in these corrupted vices. Let the Spirit convict you. Own it. It is polluted corruption that could ruin you, your marriage, your friendships, your church. It's ruining our society. But Christ is the remedy. Flee to Him. At the foot of the cross, you will find cleansing for your defilement. And you can experience the Spirit fostering His new life, His new disposition, the virtues of Jesus in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would take this uh, very hard, blunt, candid word where Jesus doesn't mince His words. And we pray that we wouldn't rationalize it, that we wouldn't psychologize it away, that we wouldn't fall into the trap of society to say it's all external, it's the fault of other people, it's the fault of institutions, it's the fault of my parents, it's the fault of my background. Father, we pray that we would own the problem of our own corrupted hearts, and yet, we thank you for the remedy. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that there is an outside in that cures us, that heals us, that makes us new, that cleanses us. And so God, we don't want to withstand you in pride. We want to bow before you in humility. We need that gift. And we pray that we wouldn't flee away in the vices, but that we would flee toward the cross. And that there we would not only find cleansing, but the fact that your spirit has put a new heart within us. That you have given us a new disposition at the root. And God, sometimes that seems small and faint and weak and we trample on it. But we pray that you would fan it. And that you would help us to become more like Jesus. That we would want what you want and not have warped wants in our hearts. Forgive us for even this week for allowing um, sin to leak out in our words toward our families, in our actions or inaction. 
with our attitudes. God, forgive us for our own corruption. Help us to say, I'm sorry for what I meant to say. And help us to receive your forgiveness and the new life of your spirit this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Jesus has cleansed us and redeemed us and made us white as snow. Let these words of Psalm 51 become your own as we sing.